Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. I am so excited for you to hear today's episode with Mike Mutzel. This episode took a turn that I didn't expect at first, and I loved it so much. If you are someone who loves the science side of nutrition and health, you're going to really enjoy this. And if you're somebody who enjoys discussing mindset when it comes to overcoming health issues, you are also going to really love this. So I love that it was a blend of the best of both worlds. Before I get into the interview, I want to take a minute to tell you guys about this episode's sponsor, Beekeepers Naturals, one of my favorite brands in the world, everything from the products to the mission behind the company. And if you are not familiar with Beekeepers Naturals, they create wellness products, bee products that are made from healing hive compounds and plant-based ingredients to provide a natural option for overcoming modern health challenges. And I really think everybody needs these products in their lives. If you want a really in-depth, full breakdown of what all these products can do to really maximize their use, and if you just want your mind blown, make sure you listen to episode 206 with Carly Stein, the founder of the company, because she goes in-depth about all of the healing properties of the different bee products and how to use them and also really explains why the bees are so important and the whole social mission behind it. But I want to highlight here a few of my favorite products. The Propolis Throat Spray is something I've been using for years. I had first heard about it from Chris Kresser and Katie from Wellness Mama and I thought I gotta try this and the Propolis is basically nature's antibiotic and something I take every day, multiple times a day. Propolis is the immune system of the hive and has a ton of incredible germ-fighting properties. It has over 300 beneficial vitamins, minerals, and compounds. It is great for supporting your immune system. It's great if you are getting sick or just to prevent sickness. If you have a sore throat or a cough, definitely up your propolis use. But also if you're just a stressed out person, if you travel a lot, if you are an athlete, if you have an autoimmune disease, I definitely recommend looking into propolis to help support your immune system. I rarely ever get sick and I think this is a huge reason why and anytime I have been around somebody who's sick or I feel like I might get run down with something if I haven't been sleeping enough or I've been traveling, I just up my propolis use and I really rarely ever get sick and This also helps to fight against free radical damage, so it's just an all-purpose product that I think everybody needs to have in their all-natural remedy cabinet, and I take five to ten sprays a day first thing in the morning and in the afternoon, and sometimes even more than that if I really want to up it. 
but I think it tastes delicious. So that is my top recommendation. And the other product I also take every day is their Bee Powered Hive Superfood Complex. The Bee Powered combines all the superfoods of the hive, so it contains propolis for the immune support, royal jelly, which is great for nourishing your brain and also for your skin, bee pollen, which provides a great source of energy, and of course, their signature raw enzymatic honey. And I just take a teaspoon of this in the morning every single day to get all those benefits. It's also great as a face mask if you have any skin irritation. I really recommend this. I know people who have gotten rid of their psoriasis and eczema symptoms by using that mask regularly, so it's really powerful and it tastes delicious. So you can just take the Bee Powered in a teaspoon like I do in the morning or you can drizzle it on top of your foods but that is something that I think just as a daily quote natural supplement is a must-have. One of their products that I don't take every day but I always have on hand for when I need it that I actually just took today because I'm recording five podcasts today is their Beelixir Brain Fuel and this is a nootropic formula that has compounds like royal jelly and ginkgo that will help to enhance your memory, your cognition, your performance. So if you really need to focus, stock up on the Brain Fuel. I love this because it's caffeine free and it really helps to fight against any brain fog. If you haven't slept a lot and you need to focus during the day, go after the Brain Fuel because this stuff really works. I notice a difference and I don't feel like I'm flying off the walls like I do with caffeine. So this plays a huge role and I love that it's all natural and it's fat soluble. So make sure you take this with a meal to maximize the dose. So if you're trying to get off of caffeine, this is something that is really great to look into. And I actually just ran out of one of my other favorite products, their Be Chill Hemp Honey. I need to restock. I love this at night because it is their honey formulated with a high potency hemp oil and MCT emulsion. So it's going to really maximize the bioavailability and absorption of the hemp. And it's really nice to take before bed because hemp helps you chill out before you sleep and Having honey before bed is a great sleep hack if you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night. Sometimes just a teaspoon of honey can be great to prevent that because it stocks your liver with glycogen so that your brain doesn't make you wake up in the middle of the night because it's searching for some fuel. So that's basically my daily routine in terms of beekeepers naturals. I literally have the propolis every morning. I have the bee powered every morning and then I will have the brain fuel during the day if I need it. I have some more propolis in the afternoon and then in the evening I have the bee chill hemp honey. And using these consistently has truly changed my life. So I definitely recommend you try these products out. And if you want to do that, you can go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash CRW. And my discount code CRW will get you 15% off your Beekeepers Naturals products. So again, that's beekeepersnaturals.com, P-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash C-R-W and my code C-R-W will get you that 15% off. And if you try these out, let me know what you think. So as I mentioned in today's episode, I'm chatting with Mike Mutzel. I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with Mike. He hosts the podcast High Intensity Health. You can find him at highintensityhealth.com and he is on Instagram at metabolic underscore Mike, and he is one of my favorite people to follow for real science 
information. I also love following his YouTube channel. And I also love that he throws some humor into it too. But he's just super real. He really gets into the science. One of the smartest people you'll come across. And if you love the science side of things, you definitely need to subscribe to his podcast and follow him on social media. And if you listened to my other podcast, Straight Up Paleo, you might remember him on that podcast. He was a guest then, and I wanted him to come back on this show. And just a little bit more about Mike's background. He has a master's degree in human clinical nutrition from University of Bridgeport, and he is also the author of Belly Fat Effect, if you have read that book. You should definitely check it out if you haven't. But the main reason I wanted Mike to come on was because I really wanted someone to come on and chat about fasting because I haven't had anyone on the show to discuss fasting specifically. And there are a lot of really amazing people who are experts in fasting. But I wanted Mike's perspective because I feel like he does a good job of kind of pulling everyone's information together and looking at all the research And also his own personal experience, because I've been following him for a while now and, you know, seen him kind of adjust his perspective on things as he learns more and experiences more. So I just really love his perspective. And this episode, we chat about intermittent fasting, prolonged fasting, kind of break things things down for you. So I hope you enjoy that. And also at the beginning, we have a really important conversation about mindset around illness, sickness, and how our words are so powerful and important. So I really can't wait for you guys to hear this. Mike is such a great guy, and I'm sure he will also appreciate if you let him know if you enjoyed it as well. So make sure you tell him if you listen to this and it resonated. I won't make you wait any longer. Let's go ahead and hop into this conversation with Mike Mutzel. I've really been wanting to have someone on to talk about fasting because I get so many questions about it and you are the expert. You've been talking about fasting for what feels like forever. Um, what, what got you interested in fasting to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I mean, I appreciate you, you know, saying that about me and stuff like that. But there's people that have been doing fasting way longer than me. Jason Fung, who actually got me really inspired about this. Um, And it's been something that I have kind of been reluctant to kind of talk about. But um, back in 2016, I got this. um, I had a lot of abdominal pain, not like excruciating pain, but I would go to bed at night and I'd feel like lumps. Like we were eating a ton of vegetables, by the way, back then. And um, so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to get, you know, I usually do labs twice a year. So I looked at different like tumor biomarkers, potentially CA125. There's different cancer antigens. And one of them I looked at was alpha feeder protein, which is really kind of it's it's linked with uh, colon cancer, uh, liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, hepatitis, and so forth. And it came back super high. And so the normal range is zero to eight. Mine was 70. So I was like, oh, crap, like this is scary. Like I so I got like an MRI of my liver. Everything was fine. But I was still kind of scared about it. So I'm like, you know what? I don't know what this is, but I'm really going to learn more about fasting, um, more about some of the autophagy, signaling molecules, insulin, all that sort of stuff. So right around that time, um, I was at a conference just before that. Prior to that, I was actually at Low Carb San Diego, the first one they had. And this was in like, you know, uh, exactly three years ago, actually today or last weekend, whatever, in August. And uh, Jason Fung saw him speak there all about fasting. And and I was like, I'm going to interview him. I was in Toronto in October that next October, two months later. So I started just diving into it. And, you know, because I came at it from kind 
kind of a fit. Like I came when I say it, I came at this whole f- in nutrition thing from a fitness background, and fitness changed my life. And so I was kind of on this eat six meals a day, have a meal protein shake, meal protein shake. You know what everyone is doing, and it was kind of this premise. You know, and I think a lot of us fall into this. We think that the more we eat, like the more fat we're going to burn. We somehow like kind of rev up our metabolic rate. So to be honest, I was totally reluctant. Like fasting was not something I was like even considering, you know, three years ago, but I started to learn more about it. So that was kind of it. And, you know, I, I realized mental clarity, my energy, digestion, you know, some of these these GI pains were these weird lumps I would have, which I now kind of chalk up to like undigested food, probably from a lot of the vegetable matter that we were eating and so on. Um yeah, so I'm not anti-vegetable per se, but I definitely don't eat as many vegetables as I used to um, due to the whole kind of this whole carnivorous movement and so forth we can talk about. But anyway, so that's the long and short of it. But I think it's such a powerful tool. Now my wife is just eating one meal a day. She's really much more aggressive about fasting than me. Her brain, her physique has changed, her energy level, her productivity, her sleep, like all this stuff. So, you know, I went from super skeptic to I would never do this to, oh my gosh, this is like a huge part of my life. I want to share this with other people. You know, it's been a slow evolution over the past three years. And I'll just preface people if they're interested in fasting, I think going keto for a few months initially will really make that transition much more healthily because, you know, when you're in a fasted state, it's a natural way to get into ketosis anyway. So whether that's 16 hours of fasting per day, eight hours of a feeding window, whether that's doing a 36 hour fast, whatever it is, you're still relying upon fatty acid oxidation and ketone utilization. And so, you know, being keto beforehand really kind of lends itself well. Yeah. Okay. So before I dive into all the fasting specific questions, since you brought it up, it's interesting because I think, I mean, I podcasted with you for my other podcast like a year and a half ago, I think. And at that time, you you and Deanna were eating more, more kind of vegan style, like keto vegan um, and so what, what really like launched the, the shift there? Was it like the whole carnivore movement or what, what, what shifted that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I mean, I was really, again, I'm very skeptical of all these new things. Like I was skeptical of fasting. I was very skeptical of carnivore. I thought, and I, it's never that I've been anti-meat per se, but like, you know, I got into this whole paleo thing back in 2005 and, and it was all about grass fed, you know, eating, you know, wild caught fish and game and all that. So, I, you know, we've been eating that way for a while. But, I, you know, also a lot of my training came from the Institute for Functional Medicine, you know, starting back in that same time period. And it was a lot of focus on polyphenols and fiber and all these phytonutrients and vegetables and plants. And, you know, to be honest, it was seeing Deanna's body change over time that got me a little bit more interested in that. And I don't know exactly because she doesn't listen to podcasts as much as I do or, or all that. She just kind of, you know, experiments with different things and, um, seeing her put away, you know, 180 grams of protein per day, like in one meal. And then she's getting stronger, more vascular. And she was already had a good base to build upon. Um, I started to get more, I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like if you can do this, I probably can do it too. Um, so that was part of it, I, I would say. And then, you know, to be honest, you know, seeing Sean Baker, so Sean Baker, you know, I think he, you know, there were people that were talking about carnivore, but when he went on Joe Rogan's podcast back in 2017, I believe, um, I was like, who is this guy? He eats only meat. And then I, he, he can deadlift 415, 405 pounds for a cumulative 50 repetitions in one exercise session. And he's 52, 53 years old, something like that. So I was pretty blown away by just like his ability to maintain a very high level of physical performance 
as he ages, because most people at the age of 50 can barely do any physical, I mean, you know, their physical activity declines and his activity was increasing. And also Stan Efforting was another one. So he's a bodybuilder who's actually friends with Sean, did a podcast with him. And so both Stan Efforting and Sean Baker are over the age of 50 deadlifting more than twice what I can deadlift. And it just got me maybe realizing that perhaps my overemphasis on these the microbiome, rebuilding the microbiome through phytonutrients, perhaps that's not the best strategy for you know optimizing physical performance. And, and, and it makes me, I can't help but wonder if a diet can help optimize your physical performance, how would that somehow then increase your risk of getting a disease that's linked with longevity for, or impaired longevity like diabetes and cancer, things like that. So anyway, just started experimenting and lo and behold, and it took me a long time to kind of like admit to this because I'm very biased. I have a garden. I love gardening and all that, that all the vegetable matter that I was eating, perhaps I was creating some of the imbalances in digestion and some of the GI issues that I was experimenting with. So I was like, all right, look, I'm just going to try this carnivore thing. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a carnivore expert in any shape or form. So I started doing some more raw meat, uh, you know, really cutting back on the vegetables and I was like, wow, I feel so much better. I don't have those GI issues. I don't sit in bed and be like, what is this lump? What is that? You know, and because that literally used to be a, like it drove me nuts. Like three years ago, that August, September, like I was frenetically trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Why do I have this tumor biomarker elevated? You know, what are these lumps and bumps in my belly? Like what the heck is going on? And now that I eat primarily like a animal-based diet, we still do have greens and things like that, a little bit of fruit, but it's not like we were going crazy with stuff because we were growing it in our yard. And so like, mm-hmm. it was like more the merrier, right? And uh, I don't, look, I don't think all vegetables are bad. I don't think plants are here to kill us. And I don't think, it, you know, they're, they're these evil things, but I also realize that perhaps we've overestimated the health benefits of plants. And I think it's, 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 reasonable for us to reconsider how much we should or would be consuming. So um, that's kind of why my perceptions change. And uh, as I mentioned, I mean, I was anti-carnivore too. I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world when people were doing that. I'm like, come on, only meat, only muscle meat from Costco. You guys are crazy. And I slowly just, you know, changed what I was doing. And so I think it's important for people to realize that we're all so biased when we go into this nutrition thing and we need to be open-minded and try things. And that's been a big lesson for me is before I kind of say that's dumb or this is good, I really need to have an open mind and just try this out for myself. 100%. I think it's very important to try different things out. And I I thought the same thing when I heard about carnivore. And then when I tried it, I was like, wow, I'm not bloated at all. Interesting. (laughs) Um, And it's helped so many people. But I think people get in trouble when they swing too far in one direction and just say that is word of God and that's how to eat, whether it be. I mean, I think honestly, even seeing kind of what's happening in the carnivore space, some of it reminds me of what happened with the, the vegan space. Like, people in the carnivore saying everyone needs to be carnivore this is the only way to eat i'm like you're backing yourself into a corner the same way the vegans did and uh, uh it's just it makes me worried um but regarding the fasting you had also mentioned at the at the beginning that you like didn't really want to talk about it that much before why is that well it was kind of embarrassing um so here i am you know i've made my entire living since 2006 
as a consultant of natural health products. As a sales rep, um, you know, I started out in Colorado selling dietary supplements, and uh, I was thankfully I got a lot of mentors back then that kind of got me into the industry. Started doing more lecturing, public speaking, webinars, all that sort of stuff, and then you know I have this podcast where I interview people, you know, in the and so on. And I was like, wow, how am I gonna like explain this to people? Like I have this tumor growing, or I have this biomarker, like, and I also didn't want to create like a cry wolf situation where it's like, hey, feel sorry for me, I have this biomarker, but I don't know why it's elevated, you know? And, and so I was just like, I was like, I'm not gonna do, you know? And the thing is, what's confusing about this particular biomarker, and, and we can get into biomarkers, because I think it's really important, the whole mindset and the identity, because first of all, this one particular biomarker, alpha fetal protein, as I mentioned, it's really only used to monitor cancer progression after it's been diagnosed. After, for example, you have hepatitis C, hepatitis B, you track alpha fetal protein or AFP to see how your liver is, you know, becoming damaged from this viral infection. In the same situation with men with testicular cancer, it's used to monitor testicular cancer to give you an idea of ranges. Since I've been talking a lot about this in the last month or so and just letting people know, because I've been seriously tracking my numbers since 2016 and they haven't risen. So that makes me a little bit more, you know, less concerned that I have this like tumor growing. And, but so my range, even though the reference range is zero to eight, mine was 70. There's people with testicular cancer, their, their levels are 15,000 or there's one lady, um, her husband had hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a, a very progressive liver, uh, liver cancer and his levels were 900. So it's like, there's a huge range. And I realized that some, we don't have really good reference ranges for some of these different tests. And so it's, you know, a lot of us will get a test back and it will say we're sensitive to gluten or we do a food allergy test and we'll say you're sensitive to turmeric root and all this. And we need to realize that this is just a test and many of these tests are very imperfect. And, and we need to realize that some of these biomarkers can be elevated for other reasons. So I started to dive into alpha fetal protein and there's a million and one reasons. So if we hear about uh, albumin, this is a, a protein within our blood. We can measure this. Um, alpha fetal protein, even though it's a tumor marker, it has many non-tumor promoting functions, including fatty acid transport involved in, in the mitochondria. So there's like all these different functions that no doctor had ever told me about that alpha fetal protein does. And so I was like, well, you know, and so I didn't want to cry wolf about it, but I also was kind of like, well, I don't want to tell people I have this thing elevated because then they'll be like, see, I told you keto's crap, you know, keto's bad for your liver and all that. Anyway, but the reason why I feel more comfortable talking about it now is that Deanna and I both just had full body MRIs. And so let me just pause and back up. Um, Deanna lost her sister when she was 14 to a brain tumor, glioblastoma. And then her mother has had cancer twice now and is battling her second cancer. So that's why, and I just want to give everyone a little bit of context. That's why we're both very interested in fasting. You know, we don't have these weight loss transformation stories where some people lose 300 pounds or we, you know, we didn't reverse diabetes. We're just trying to make sure that we don't get disease. And there's a strong, at least familial history of cancer in Deanna family. So that's why she does the one meal a day approach. Uh, a lot of people are kind of 
they've heard about the Warburg effect. They've heard about how glucose and insulin can drive the metabolic aberrations and can create the microenvironment that fosters tumor and cancer growth and progression. So that's why Deanna is really doing this one meal a day to really drive her glucose and insulin down and all that. Um, anyway, long story short, so we just went up to Vancouver. There's this really great place called Prenovo and they do a diffusion weight imaged full body MRI using really different technology than actually what we have anywhere else in the world. And so I was actually super scared uh, to do because I've had this tumor marker, right? And, I, and it gets into the mindset thing for anyone with autoimmunity, with Hashimoto's, with lupus. Like we start to identify with this. You know, my antibodies are elevated. I have Hashimoto's. And we start to believe that, you know, this doom and gloom, like we start to believe that maybe our body, you know, is, is malfunctioning. We got a broken part, like, you know, and all that. And I was honestly so scared because I was like, dude, I, I felt like I had can't like, cause I started to believe like this tumor marker has been elevated. It's been three years. Like I know there's gonna be cancer somewhere. Like I told like Dan and I, and we went on a hike the day before. Uh, maybe I'm getting into too much detail. Tell no. me to stop rambling. And I was like, I was like, well, I said to Dan, I'm like, well, you know, when they see the cancer, what are you going to think about it? She's like, Mike, why would you even say that? Like, come on. Like her mindset was so much more positive. And then it made me realize I'm like, man, I'm starting to believe this thing because this one blood test mm -hmm. is and it could be high for a million other reasons. But I started to like believe that it was high because of cancer. Anyway, so. Um, I went and did this MRI thing. It took about 90 minutes. It's, it's, it's really comprehensive. It's about $1,700 American. Uh, but it was just peace of mind for me and peace of mind for Deanna, right? So anyway, so I went in and then I saw the radiologist afterwards, this guy named Raj. He's amazing. He was on Peter Ortiz's podcast in June. And, um, and so I was like, all right, Raj, so you got to tell me, man, I got this blood test elevated. Let's just look right at the liver. He's like, okay. Yeah. He was, he's, he goes, yeah, I was already looking at this. You know, he's like, your liver's squeaky clean. And I was like, I was about to cry. I'm like, what? Like, are you kidding me? I'm like, really? I'm like, I, I'm like, let's go over it again. He's like, Mike, I have three different images here. Like this one image from this. He's like, it's clean. I'm like, man, I was like, well, I'm so happy, but I'm also kind of pissed because I was seriously like believing I had freaking liver cancer, you know? And he's like, all right. And I'm like, well, let's go look at the testes because I know elevated alpha fever protein is linked with testicular cancer. He looked at my testes. No, there's, I mean, unless it's so small, less than like half of a centimeter, he's like, it could be so small that I can't see it, in which case it's probably not a big deal anyway. And I was like, I was just in there. I like couldn't believe what the words that he was telling me and I could see the images on the thing. So then he was like, he's like, but Mike, I do see that you have this seminal vesicle that's slightly enlarged as like, this is benign, probably meaningless, but that could be what's driving this elevated protein. I was like, well, I don't give a crap about an enlarged seminal vesicle unless you think it's cancerous. He's like, no, this could just be a genetic thing. We might want to keep an eye on it. Um, and I was just like so relieved. I was like, man, this is crazy. Like uh, how we can't – like our mind is so powerful. And that's the thing. Like um, uh, just the caveat of of doing tests and, and the thing that I used to be – I'm like a more is better type person, right? Um, more sets, more reps, more muscle. That's just like my mindset. So I was thinking more tests the better, right? If I can get all these cancer tests. But I wanted to caution people, you know, this one little experience like – if you're going to get a bunch of tests, you better be prepared to deal with the potential false positive and the news because 
like there's nothing worse than getting a test and it says it right there, tumor biomarker, and it's elevated. That's totally going to screw with your mind. And so a mentor of mine, Gerard Guillory, an MD, who I worked with in Colorado, he was like, you know, I don't order any tests on my patients unless I know it's going to change the outcome. And I used to think, dude, come on, you're so conservative, man. But he's been practicing medicine now for like 25 years. He's seen tens of thousands of patients and it makes sense. And so a lot of us in the integrative space, we want more data. We want more tools. We want food allergy. This and All that stuff is great. You know, like I track my sleep. I do blood work. But if you don't know how this thing if it's not going to change anything, you may not need to know about it. There's people in there that are living to be 95, 97 years old that probably don't even have blood work, right? <laughs> and so um, I, I sometimes just want to caution people with data on that because we create stories in our head and sometimes they can be untrue and we start to de- believe what's on the test. So anyway, I've been rambling for a minute. I'm sure you have some questions. No, I'm really glad you said that though because that's why sometimes I get worried about how – random tests are becoming more widely available to anyone like we see these bullshit food intolerance tests that people are just ordering and then people come to me like yeah I'm intolerant to 50 foods and I'm like no you're not like they really believe it because they got some random test on the internet and that's like small scale but like your story just shows how it could be something much bigger that you're believing in your head and I really I mean I'm sure you're familiar with like Joe Dispenza and it's like what we believe can come true just because we're thinking it so it really is a danger and I'm glad you brought that up but I think it's so interesting that you you really thought it was gonna show up as cancer when you of all people like you do literally everything to to squash that like, like, I don't know how it would survive in your body with everything you do. Well, that's a good point. But I started to think so like I've been healthy for a long time. I, when I say healthy, I mean, you know, my high school friends used to joke about me. I'd have egg whites and oatmeal instead of the McDonald's. I bring it with me in Tupperware container and stuff. But, you know, I was a traveling sales rep for I mean, I started in 2013. So I was flying to Chicago, flying to Toronto, like East. I was living basically in, in Seattle and Chicago. So I was thinking that like my expo, it could have been all this travel and circadian rhythm disruption because I felt like you know, that like this three to four year span, like I was living like this hustler traveling life. And so I was thinking maybe perhaps that could have been the straw that broke the camel's back and so forth and screwed up, whatever. So that I was trying to think, cause I'm like, yeah, I never really smoked cigarettes. Like, you know, I maybe chewed tobacco half a dozen times at most. Like, you know, I didn't, there's not a lot of things and I don't have cancer that runs in my family. So yeah, the mind is super, that's just what, I, you know, we get into all these biochemical things about fasting and, and autophagy and all that. It's super powerful. Um, but the mind, man, I, I mean, because I get direct messages from people on Instagram, I'm sure you do too, Christina, where people say they start off saying, I have Hashimoto's, I have lupus, I have this. And I just want to just slap them be like, well, okay, maybe you have an imbalance at this point in time, but you don't, you know, we got to reframe the words that we say to ourselves. And I'm saying this as much for my own self as a, like a aha moment that I want to share with other people because the words that we say, and I used to say, Oh, I'm going to kill it today. I'm going to crush it today. But I don't say that shit anymore. I'm like, I, you know, I, I don't say kill. I think it's bad to say these things, death, kill. Um, I was interviewed by a great podcaster recently and he says, and, and I don't want to mention his name, but he's like, I'm worried about, 
I want to know more about this because I'm dying. And I, 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 I was like, it was a real awkward situation where I was like, I didn't want to confront him on his own show and be like, dude, don't say you're dying. Like, I know we're all theoretically getting closer and closer every day to potentially dying in 50, 100, whatever years. But I'm like, you don't want to, the words have meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people don't think about that, if you're in a bad mood, if you just say, I'm happy, you and you smile like you're more happy, right? Yeah. And so it's uh, it's like it's not as sexy as talking about autophagy. It's not as cool as talking about ketones and all this, but uh, it's a good reinforcer mm-hmm. for all of us about the basics. And uh, you know, look, anyone w- that has a disease, um, I encourage you to just reframe how you think about it because you will start to behave differently and take different actions. And I'll, I'll never forget my step, my mother-in-law. Um, she has her, she's going through cancer for the second time. And the first time she was very gung ho, like, I'm going to just, this is just a blip in the road. I'm going to get through this no matter what. Like, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not going to be this cancer survival person. I'm just, I'm just getting through this. Like her mindset was so different. She got through it. It was, she caught early endometrial cancer on a random pap smear that she probably shouldn't have even had, but she had this intuition that she should have a pap smear. They caught it way before it was even elevated on any blood test, right? Then she got, um, multiple myeloma, caught it early again. And then, so I would visit her because I was traveling to Toronto all the time, to Canada, because I was managing that territory for a company. And um, and I'll never forget that, you know, the last time I saw her, she's doing much better now. But at her darkest moment, she was like, I can't remember exactly how she said it, but something along the lines of, well, for a moment there, I almost felt like a normal person, a cancer-free person. And so, the and I could see it in her demeanor and how she was talking and her mood and her affect that she was identifying that she was not normal anymore. She was a cancer patient. Mm-hmm. And you could see literally like she had less vitality. She had less energy. She was kind of more unpleasant to be around and hopefully she doesn't hear it. I'm not saying this in a negative way, Jan, if you listen to this, you know, I mean this with all due respect. And now she's, she's totally, you know, gone beyond that and so forth. But I was really worried about her at that point in time because you could see it that she lost hope. Mm -hmm. And I am offering this because I know a lot of your listeners probably have autoimmune disease or have Hashimoto, you know, it's so common amongst young women, Mm -hmm. um, or body image issues where they think they're fat, they believe they're fat or they're whatever. And we just really got to focus on how we talk to ourselves, how we communicate to ourselves and the words that we literally, that we repetitively say that we internalize that becomes our reality. And here I was, I was probably going to damn near manifest cancer in my own body just because I had this biomarker that's elevated that could have been elevated for an unrelated cancer reason. And I was going to, I was believing that I had freaking cancer, man. And, and part of it is a blessing in disguise because I was treating how I, I was parenting differently with my daughter, setting up my business, setting up my will. I was like, just in case, I mean, it's probably a good measure to do anyway. Right. But I was like, and, and now I bl- really truly believe deep down like man i kind of have like a second chance you know what i mean like because i thought something could be wrong and i'm like man it feels good i feels good to be alive create content interact with great people so i think you know that's the other silver lining is the for people listening is whatever health ailment you're struggling with everyone's got a little different problem no one's perfect use that to propel you like find the silver lining and 
I mean, if you look at even someone like Mark Hyman and some of these, the biggest names in the world, David Perlmutter, you know, in our space, you know, David is using his knowledge about his father who got Alzheimer's and dementia early in life to teach other people about how to prevent it. Look at Max Lugavere, same thing, lost his mother early to dementia, Alzheimer's, and he's using this to educate millennials and, and folks to get out in front of this disease. So I think People need to realize that there is a silver lining in their imbalance, and it's hard to find that, but finding that, and instead of feeling sorry for ourselves and thinking, oh man, my body hates me, I'm always inflamed, I'm always fat, I'm always sick, I'm always tired, we got to think, rethink about how we reframe our own disease. 100%. I'm so glad you're, I mean, I didn't expect us to have this conversation, but I'm really glad we are, because, I mean, especially in, you know, most of my audience are women like 20s and 30s and especially with this social media space happening and it's become like almost glorified to be sick I see people almost like using that for attention like sorry if it offends you but I mean it's the truth you know people are like almost building brands off of being sick and that's no way to live and also seeing people feeling one way and then they get a diagnosis and the next day they have 50 more symptoms pop up and I'm like well you didn't have those symptoms until you were told you had this disease and then you looked it up and now all of a sudden you have all these other symptoms so it really is important to have this conversation because you don't like I mean our minds are powerful and like we have to take responsibility for are you making yourself sick totally it's so i mean it, it yeah we I, mean, I don't know how else that we can underscore the importance of exactly what you just said um I, I think a good example is just myself. I, you know, I know a fair amount about this stuff and, and I know I shouldn't be believing these things and saying these things. And I was and had this test. And so, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. And so I think the internet is so great for a lot of different things, but when you start Googling, you know, what, what are the associated problems with say Hashimoto's or I keep bringing that up for whatever reason or lupus or whatever MS mm -hmm. You can scare the crap out of yourself and then you can start to believe that little ache or pain is MS manifesting or, or RA or arthritis. And, you know, so I think it's we, we the Internet can be good, good and bad. Right. So we got to just focus on the positive stuff. And I've, I've found that, you know, meditation, breath work, uh, doing things to get us out of our comfort zone, like cold showers, things like that to push yourself. And then you it makes you realize, like, wow, I am resilient. I am strong. Like I can do this, mm -hmm. you know. And all of us are here because our ancestors, our great grandparents, our grandparents were tough as nails. Like that's why we're here. They survived the bubonic plagues and the famines and, you know, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Like they're fighters, man. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I resonate with what you're saying. And, and yeah, social media, I mean, you know, we, we promote more stuff that gets attention initially, right? So if I post a selfie, poor me, blah, blah, blah. And it gets 1500 likes. Then I'm going to be thinking, well, people like that. Like they, I got the attention. So I'm going to do more of that. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a catchy situation. Like if you start to get attention for your dis-ease and a lot of sympathy, don't buy into that. Right? Like I think people, um, you know, and I've heard other doctors talk about this and I don't want to offend people, but maybe it's the, the reality check they need is, you know, you do get a lot of attention when you're ill. Your parents are checking up on you. Mm -hmm. You know, your doctors are calling you. Like if you don't have a lot of other things going in your life, like it can be like your thing, like how you communicate with the world. And I think that's a scary place to get your community and build your community around because it's it's really not sustainable because that means that 
you don't really like getting un getting healthy doesn't really serve you directly because people are going to scale back and not call you as much because they're gonna be like oh sally smith is healthy now i don't need to call and check up on her when i'm driving i'll call my mom instead or i'll call my other friend and so i think we need to realize that and this is why creating a business creating you know just finding whatever it is that you can do to serve other people that is so much more satisfying than having all these people check up on you and stuff like that right so you know finding making someone else's day brighter you know and and uh, so whatever it is, like whatever you're passionate about, everyone's gifted. Some people are great with art. Some people are great with makeup. Some people are great with, you know, communicating or hearing other people. Just do whatever that is. And once, yeah, like I love, you know, business and customers and stuff. And I love just interacting with people and then having them write back like, man, or, or call in and just say, I just had a great interact. And it, that lights me up. I, that's what I, I live for, you know? So I, every, that's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I think that can get you out of the rut of, I need attention for my woes and everything to, wow, I feel better deep down, which is more sustainable by serving other people. A hundred percent. And that's exactly, I know for me with clients with autoimmune diseases, chronic illness, that's the reason they're not getting better is because they have this deep seated fear of, um, like what's going to happen to me when I'm not sick anymore. Are people going to pay attention to me? Like it's uncomfortable and it's really, they don't want to get better and they don't realize they say they do, but they don't really because they're scared of what's going to happen. And that's how we get them out of it. We focus on what's your purpose, like find your purpose. And when you really do, then you realize you don't need to like lay, lean back on that crutch anymore because people don't people don't just like you because you're sick right. <laughs> you know um but let's move into the fasting before yeah, i yeah. let this get away from me completely although i love that conversation and i think that's going to resonate with everyone who who hears it but with fasting so maybe you can just talk generally about benefits and like what is this doing in the body when we fast like this is yeah, the baseline I- Let's let's get right into it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing. I, you know, I mean, the the basic premise of fasting, and the reason why I think it's so effective, and and, and really different from just other ways of of dieting and so forth, like uh, eating six meals a day or calorie restriction, is when you fast, you cause your body to make this metabolic switch away from relying upon glucose utilization. And really, a lot of people are in a chronic state of fat storage, and that's why people are really a lot of people are gaining weight. They say, "Oh my gosh, I, I, I'm doing everything I used to do, but I'm gaining weight." Well, why is that? They're they're really eating a lot uh, frequently and so forth. And so, the, the the situation is when we're fasting, and that and and this umbrella of fasting, people can't see my hands right now, but underneath intermittent fasting, we have time restricted feeding, we have alternate day fasting, we have the five two diet, which is basically fasting for twenty four two twenty four hour periods on non-consecutive days. So I do like a metabolic Monday where I fast for 24 hours on Monday. It's easy. That way you just kickstart your week in a great state. And then you can fast for on Thursday, for example. Anyway, there's a, a million and one ways to do it. There's no one right way. The, the thing, it's like saying, okay, what's the best exercise? Well, what are your goals, right? I mean, if you have low back pain, maybe Pilates is the best form of exercise for you right now. If you're trying to be a bodybuilder, maybe you need to squat and bench press, right? So it's, there's not one right way to do this. But the, the 
thing that we need to figure out or people need to walk away from this conversation is when you fast, you're causing your body to burn body fat instead of store it. You're causing your body to utilize fats and ketones instead of utilizing glucose. So that's the big thing. The other major thing, we don't think about this, um, we often hear in, in adrenal fatigue circles and stuff like this, you know, that, that we need to eat food to nourish our body. And I'm not saying food doesn't nourish our body. It's this paradoxical thing where um, eating food is not free of iatrogenesis. And so if you think about, uh, there's this book, Anti-Fragile, he talks about iatrogenesis. So um, the one of the leading causes of death actually in the U.S. is iatrogenesis, meaning you go to the doctor, you get a, a medicine or you get a surgical procedure, it goes wrong, people die. Like that's, that's one of the top four leading causes of death. A lot of people don't know about that. So when you intervene in a system, when you try to fix something, you can inadvertently do harm, right? So here's the thing. Here's where I'm going with that. Just so we understand what iatrogenesis means. We generally think when we eat food, we're only nourishing our body. There's really no downside to that. But here's kind of the, the paradox of that is when we eat food, it disrupts our biochemistry. And I'm not saying never eat food again, but I'm just saying this is the thing that we need to think about. A lot of people are afraid, and I'm saying this because people are afraid of fasting because they're like, well, wait, I'm healing my adrenal fatigue. I'm healing my autoimmunity. autoimmunity. I don't need this other stress about fasting. And so I just want to caution them and have them actually think about this. The paradox of eating food is, yes, we absolutely have to have food to function, but it's not free. It's not side effect free. And so that's why, you know, a lot of people are scared of fasting because it raises cortisol and adrenaline. But if you look at the feeding studies, if you look at people that, that say eat at once every four hours, guess what happens when they eat? It raises adrenaline and cortisol. So it's not like there, you know, there's, there's no free lunch here because what happens is when we fast, we're actually, our, our body is in a more homeostatic equilibrium. And the way, you know, in terms of the way that, you know, glucose kind of flatlines, it bottoms out usually around 60 to 70 um, milligrams per DL and then if, ML. And if you look at, um, you know, lipids, they tend to increase and things like that. But it's, it's very, there's not a lot of disruption in the body's homeostatic e equilibrium. But when we eat a meal and we have this surge of glucose, when we have this surge of lipids and so forth, we kind of disrupt the balance. And so that's why we do see shifts in adrenaline, more adrenaline, cortisol. And so I just want to throw that out there uh, because I know a lot of people are scared of fasting because it's stressful. But we need to think about that eating is paradoxically stressful. Like it's necessary, but it actually is quite stressful. And if you look at when heart disease and atherosclerosis and post-meal, when, when we're most inflamed, it's in the post-meal window. When we develop uh, arterial plaque and our, uh, you know, the so-called endothelial layer that lines our cardiovascular system, when that becomes, becomes damaged, it's in the post-meal window. Mm -hmm. So it, that's kind of, it's interesting to think about. There's uh, some researchers at University of Washington, and you can, uh, anyone can type this into Google, um, the feeding paradox. And this guy, this uh, George something, I can't remember his last name, but he's published many papers on this. And it's like the paradox of actually eating food it, it disrupts your body's homeostasis. So yeah, long story short, to answer your specific question, just for purposes of review, fasting 
takes you out of utilizing glucose and promoting fat storage to utilizing fats for fuel and not storing body fat. You're burning it. So that's the benefits. There's a bunch of other side benefits. A lot of people don't realize that the first human clinical study in fasting was not for obesity. Um, This was a randomized human controlled study out in Boston over at um, Johns Hopkins University. It was individuals with asthma. So here's what's interesting. So I know a lot of your listeners have, you know, inflammatory based diseases, autoimmunity and so forth. One of the main benefits of fasting is it decreases inflammation. And so that's another thing that people can utilize fasting for. So a lot of people, you know, and it makes sense, people with diabetes, people with obesity have higher prevalences of inflammatory mediated diseases, including but not limited to cancer, asthma, allergies, and so on. So fasting is a great way to just tone down your body's, um, you know, uh, immune response and inflammation. So there's a bunch of different benefits. And lastly, I think the real benefits for many of us uh, as as young entrepreneurs, people that want to, you know, leave a legacy, build a business, build a brand is the brain-based benefits. And there are so many different neurotransmitters, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain, orexin A. There's a bunch of different chemicals that are actually increased favorably in our favor as the faster when we're fasting. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, kind of clearing out those mental cobwebs, enhancing autophagy to get kind of get rid of aggregated proteins and dysfunctional cells and cellular organelles, all that increases. So there's a, a range of benefits. It's just, and here's the cool part is it's free. Like <laughs> actually you save money when you start fasting because you don't need to buy protein bars, protein shakes and all this. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that per se, but, um, you know, you're eating less frequently. So you save money. Is there anyone, though, who you think should not be fasting? Great. A wonderful question. Yeah, because here we go talking about all the benefits and all that. Um, If you're trying to get pregnant, uh, I don't think it's a huge, you know. Now, that being said, if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome and you're overweight and you're insulin resistant, then fasting can be helpful uh, in that situation. If If you're a very lean, competitive athlete, very low body fat percentage, you may not be the ideal candidate for prolonged fasting. But even time-restricted feeding or compressing your feeding windows to say only six to eight hours per day, most people, I I can't, outside of breastfeeding and pregnancy, I don't think that there's too many contraindications, meaning that most people should be able to do that without side effect. You know, but like I said, extreme athletes, very low body fat percentage, recovering anorexic or eating disorders or someone that was on drugs and, you know, uh, former alcoholics that are malnourished, you know, unique situations like that, pretty unusual uh, for people listening to your podcast. But but I do get a lot of DMs on Instagram from women that are breastfeeding or pregnant. And I don't recommend that. Look, you can fast, I, I'd say 12 hours a day is plenty, mm-hmm. right? And so that's just, that's probably what humans would do anyway. You know, that's the thing. You're not getting up in the middle of the night having like an ice cream bar or something like that. So look, just fasting for 12 hours a day, it's very doable. And you're still going to, and here's what's interesting, <clears throat> pardon me, What's super interesting is, you know, we've been taught that we need to eat and eat and eat at every two to three hours and all this. But if you actually look at the feeding studies in animals, so if you're a pig farmer or a chicken farmer, you know, you basically the way you profit more is to decrease your cost of goods, right? So you you can if you can get heavier birds or heavier pigs at slaughter, you're going to make more money because you sell it per pound, right? So there's a vested interest in cutting the cost of goods down, like for example, how much you feed your animals, but still having them gain enough weight so you make money. So animal scientists, and, and I've been looking at some of this because I, I have, we have two hogs in our backyard. 
and uh, I used to feed them all like twice a day. And they, their, their feces, I mean, it was like, we smell like a damn hog farm around here and we're not even supposed to have these pigs. And, um, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go one meal a day on these pigs and just see, right? And guess what? They're, they're, they're crap, they're fecal material. It didn't smell as bad. All of a sudden, like you couldn't smell. And so, I, so that was just kind of my end of one little observation. I didn't think that there was any science behind this. I'm like, wow, they just don't smell as bad. This is okay, great. But I was reading some of the, the agricultural science. There's this journal Meat Science. There's other agricultural animal science journals. And uh, these individual scientists have figured out that when they feed animals just one meal a day, this is both turkeys, chickens, and hogs. I don't know about cows, but, you know, and presumably this applies to humans as well. Remember, porcine thyroid, we get porcine adrenal. We actually used to get insulin from pigs. So um, they're similar to us from some, several different levels. When you feed these animals just once a day, it increases feed efficiency. So they actually absorb more of the food that they ingest and excrete less as waste in feces. So that's why I was noticing that their their feces doesn't smell as much. So going back to like the contraindications, pregnant women, breastfeeding women who should or shouldn't do this because we think we're not going to get enough nutrition because we're going to be kind of malnourished. But it turns out that when you, when you eat less frequently and just have these bolus meals instead of constantly grazing – it turns out that we absorb and assimilate more and muscle protein synthesis increases. And so there was actually a study uh, in women. They looked at young women versus older women. These were women, they were, their average age was 68 years old. They were feeding these women just once a day. And they were looking at biomarkers of muscle protein synthesis and amino acid metabolism. And the elderly women, 68 years old on average, even though they were just eating one meal a day, higher protein diet, their rates of muscle protein synthesis were higher compared to the younger women, average age I think was 27, who were eating four meals a day. So again, it goes against what we read about in you know, Flex Magazine and these Fitness Magazine, Oxygen and all that. But this is science. I mean, this is what, you know, the, again, animal feeding studies show. This is what some human clinical studies show. We don't have a ton of human studies at this point. So I can't help but speculate that just perhaps, you know, promoting more meals, more consumption of food was somehow part of the food industry, the food bar creation. If you look at any of these fitness magazines, and I have a supplement company myself, so I sound a little incongruent with this, but but hear me out. Like, you know, they're promoting, hey, have have your, you know, your your you go work out, you have a meal, you have a protein shake, a meal, a protein shake, like or a protein bar. And I can't help but I mean I I, I think there is financial, you know, some, yeah. something to gain financially here. And I think anytime there, there is that, we need to be a little bit wary of, of where that data is coming from. Yeah, 100%. Because if you don't have a protein shake within 30 minutes of exercising, you're going to shrivel up, right? You're going right. to yeah. die. Um, do, you, do you know, have there been any studies on like long-term intermittent fasting on women in their reproductive years? This is a great question as well. So I, I think women in their reproductive years and wanting to get pregnant should be a little bit more cautious about this and, and, you know, be mindful of the fact that if you notice any menstruation changes, any cycle changes that, that don't ignore that, like, like be cognizant of that. So yeah, I think it's a brilliant question. You know, the, 
one of the the positive side effects of whether it's intermittent fasting, ketosis, time-restricted feeding is naturally you're less hungry. So it lends itself to, and it can lend lend itself to under eating. And so that's where we need to be careful, especially if we're already physically active or if we're pushing our body in other directions, like we're working hard or we're doing this, we need to be mindful of the fact that that, hey, you know, food, food's not this bad thing. You know, I was talking about that paradox of feeding kind of thing they were talking about. But, you know, we still need nutrition, right? We're, we're human beings. So um, definitely be mindful of that. Okay. So let's – I want to, like, define fasting. Like, what what is a fast? And we talked about, like, there are so many different types of fast. And I think people are confused. Like, do I intermittent fast every day? Should I do a prolonged fast once a month? Like, what should I do 5-2? Like, what are the pros and cons of those? And also, like, what really is a fast? Like, if, if someone is, you know, just not eating for 12 hours, that's pretty easy for people. Is that still a fast? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know that anyone... There's not like the encyclopedia of fasting, yeah. right? Like there's some there's some academic articles from people like Mike Matson, um, Walter Longo, some other people that are actually looking at this and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean that's where this intermittent fasting it's it's kind of loose. It's mm-hmm. like intermittent fasting is this big, you know. We hear about you know um, irritable bowel syndrome. You're like, well, really, what is that? Well, it encompasses Crohn's, colitis, you know, IBS. Like there's a whole bunch of, you know, it's very loose. You know, and you know, my mentors would call it kind of a wastebasket diagnosis. Like if you don't know what's wrong with someone, just call them. Uh, say they have IBS, right? And and so intermittent fasting is kind of like that. We're like, well, is it fasting for 12 hours? Is it 16, eight? Like I, the way that I would define it is, you are going for if you're if you're intermittent fasting, you're fasting for a longer period of the day than when you're eating. Like your window of fasting should be greater than. Remember those little greater than or equal yeah. signs that we talked about in math. Like you should be fasting for longer. Your fasting window should be longer than your feeding window. Okay, so 13 hours of fasting, 12 hours of feeding. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good starting place. I, that to me would be like learning how to ride your bike with training wheels. Like yeah, you're closer to riding your bike, you're closer to learning how to really fast, but you're not quite there yet, right? And so I think that's a good place to start. And then, you know, as I mentioned, some of the 5-2 diets, so you're, so you're doing two 24-hour fasts in a week's period, but they're not back-to-back, they're not consecutive days. That could be for people with allergies, autoimmunity. So that's like a, a good reset because a full 24 hours, like, ketosis is increasing glucose is dropping like you're burning body fat you're making this metabolic switch that we kind of talked about that's helpful for for fat loss that's helpful for blood sugar issues and inflammation um for people that are relatively healthy already and just like i need a little edge the one meal a day i mean that's a great way because a lot of us are super busy we want to focus on our higher you know our life's work whatever that is for the person and so one meal a day or just a shorter window is very helpful um, if people and here's where the history comes in you know if you if i were to call my financial planner and go his name's david he lives in san diego actually hey david miller you know like what's the best retirement plan mm-hmm. he's going to be like well how much how much money do you want at retirement what age do you want to retire what's your income what's your debt like so that's the thing right th- i think we we don't get the historical context so i think people listening if you've been eating six meals a day for your entire life and you're 60 years old like you might have a lot of a substantial amount of like fasting debt, right? So, so we need to reverse that a little bit. So I think we need to kind of realize like, 
when we give financial advice, we talk about income, we talk about credit card debt, we talk about all that. We need to talk about kind of the metabolic debt that we've created ourselves. And what does that look like for every, that's different for everyone. And how much inflammation do we have? How, you know, how much, how much, how many symptoms? So, you know, the more symptoms, the more inflammation, the longer that we've been eating every two to three hours for our entire life, like the more aggressive we need to be, you know? And, but I, I do want to caution people like they might listen to this and get very excited and go, oh, I'm going to do a three day fast and next week I'm going to do two day fast. And I'm going to do a seven day fast. Like, like more is not always better in this. I think consistency is better. And so what can, you know, if we think about the adaptations that we get from fasting, they're very similar to the adaptations that we get from exercise, the insulin sensitivity, the mitochondrial biogenesis, all the different you know, metabolic pathways, PPAR, mTOR, AMPK, all that stuff, even autophagy. A lot of people think autophagy is only increased through fasting. It's proportionally increased, and actually there's more data in humans showing autophagy is increased through exercise. A lot of people don't even know about that. Anyway, so that being said, you know, you don't get a bunch of great benefits from exercise if you just do one triathlon a year. Like, like yeah, you might be in shape during that session, but if you just stop training, you're not going to get the benefits. So it's that day in, day out. If you look at people that have been lifelong athletes, they don't do anything crazy. They don't even, some of the exercises they do are not that esoteric, but they're just very consistent. So whatever it is for you, just try to be very consistent. And then bake in, you know, layer in some sort of longer fast, sprinkle them in throughout the year. So you can say, you know what, and this is what I do. At the change of every fiscal quarter or every season when it changes, I do a three-day fast. For some people, it could be seven days. For some people, it could be two days. Like whatever that is, I think it's good to to kind of sprinkle in as extra credit, so to speak, prolonged prolonged fast intermixed with your regular intimate fast. And, And again, what does that look like? It's so different for for everyone. Um, but you need to take into consideration your kind of metabolic health history, and you know, you know, what are your goals? So, are there different benefits for that longer fast, or why sprinkle that in? Say you're intermittent fasting every day. Like, is there you're getting more benefits from the prolonged fast? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, you do. You know, um, some studies have shown that it's at the 72 hour mark autophagy is increased more powerfully than just at the 36 hour mark of fasting, for example. Um, and I should just, you know, kind of highlight two studies, um, to let people know that, you know, when you, the more physically fit you are, the more autophagy is increased when you're fasting. So I know a lot of people are like, "Eh, I'm doing low carb, I'm doing keto, I'm doing intermittent fasting. I don't have time for exercise. That's not important to me. Well, I want you to understand that like the more physically fit you are, and that can be walking, that can be yoga, that can be Pilates, that can be whatever, the more autophagy will be increased while you're fasting. So I want to encourage everyone to move and to do exercise. But yeah, to get your specific questions, on that, why do the prolonged thing? I think it's part of humanity. I think this idea that food was always available to us all year round in our refrigerators is probably just, that's crap. Like there were periods of time where in the shoulder seasons, right? In between winter and spring, it's not like, boom, you get 300 pounds of berries all of a sudden. It's like, it's a slow grind. So I think we need to realize that like, you know, we're, we're trying to mimic probably what nature would have like the the positive the use stress the hormetic stress that nature naturally would would have given to us and part of that is is kind of clearing out some of these aberrant proteins that we've accumulated um you know and damaged organelles via autophagy so i think that's part of it 
Okay, and then another thing, so you talk a lot about time-restricted feeding, and people are like, well, what's the difference between that and fasting? Yeah, yeah, and then this is just a subtle thing, right? Because if we talk about 16-8, it kind of seems like, well, you're always going to be eating at the same time, but, you know, some people, like, do intermittent fasting on the week, and then on the weekends, they go back to, hey, I'm having brunch with my friends, we're getting cocktails, happy hour, whatever, I, I get it, that's cool, but I encourage people to just say, okay, Whatever it is, the fasting protocol you're going to do, you need to understand that your body oscillates on a circadian rhythm. And so, you know, you mentioned menstruating women. The, you know, women menstruate, uh, you know, every, was it 28 days or something like that, roughly, because of circadian clocks. Men should wake up with an erection because of circadian rhythms, right? Um, you should go to the bathroom probably in the morning, you know, when you wake up or within a few hours because of your body's circadian clock system. So we need to realize that just like light exposure, either bad light at night or good light during the day, like as we film this middle of the day, um, that, that good light entrains our bodies, uh, our body's circadian clock system. Well, guess what? So does food. So food is a natural way to induce your body's circadian rhythm. So if you're fast and feeding windows are all over the place, you're sending mixed signals to our already perturbed circadian clock system. So I, you know, I'm a little bit biased in this, in that, and there's research to support this. A lot of folks, um, University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, and then some other folks in Australia have been studying this quite extensively, where they give people the same amount of calories, but they just kind of shove it in earlier in the day. And the reason for that, and the reason why to kind of cut off your fitting window earlier is your body's your gut motility, digestive secretory enzymes, pancreatic lipase, all this stuff, motility is most active earlier in the day. And digestion and actually insulin sensitivity gets, you know, worse throughout the day. So a lot of people don't realize that. And so I, I just think it's healthy to keep in mind whatever feeding window you're going to do, 16, 8, 12, 12, 13, 11, whatever it is, you know, what we need to keep in mind is that be consistent on the time of the day that you break your fast. So if you're like, okay, I'm only going to do one meal a day. Well, it's like break your fast at 4 p.m. every day or 5 p.m. And so just think about something that you can do consistently, you know, whatever it is for you. And so, and, and look, if you go out and party on the weekends, you, you kind of mess things up, you know, okay, that's fine. But, you know, Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday or whatever, you know, try to be a little bit consistent with that. And it's more the time of the day and that regularity because our body starts to, anticipate food. I mean, a lot of us think like, oh yeah, you know, glu uh, the reason why you get insulin rising is because glucose is rising. Well, it's like, no, insulin starts to rise when you start to smell and think about food, which is crazy. People are like, well, no, come on, dude, really? And it's, yeah, it's called this cephalic phase of digestion. And so actually a lot of us, when we get hypoglycemia, where we're like, wow, I feel jittery and low blood sugar and all that. A lot of that is because we thought we were going to eat, but we didn't eat, or we got the smell of food, or we can, like, if we think about the Pavlov experiment with dogs, you know, where you, he, um, you know, rang a bell and gave dogs food and stuff. And then, you know, so the dogs associated the bell ringing with feeding. And then we took the food away, but rang the bell, the dogs would still salivate. So we're just like, we're animals like dogs. Yeah, we're a little bit smarter than dogs, have a bigger brain, but we are still conditioned by food. And so if we always eat breakfast at 8 a.m., and that breakfast can be going to Starbucks and getting a latte and a muffin or whatever the heck it is. Like we condition our body. And so our body's trying to maintain that balance that I was telling you about earlier. And so the body's thinking, okay, well, 
I, I usually at this time a muffin comes in, so I'm going to pre-release some insulin. And then when that muffin's not there anymore, our glucose is dropping and we're like, hey, I have reactive hypoglycemia. This fasting thing doesn't work for me. We're like, well, you need to give it time, right? Because you've been telling your body for 20 years you're getting the damn muffin and the you know, whatever latte and now you're not. Your body is anticipating and that anticipation is part of the body's natural response to maintain balance when the muffin comes in or when the donuts come in. So we need to realize that um, there's conditioning, there's a cephalic phase of digestion and our circadian clock system. So whatever it is, just be a little bit consistent. And I think that will lead to more ultimately long-term success with this. So I want to talk, I think the study about just like shifting the feeding window earlier is so interesting. And so they're same amount of calories, just eating earlier in the day. And what were they measuring? Weight loss or was it something else? Yeah, well, there was a few different studies. So one study actually looked at autophagy and various longevity genes, mTOR, sirtuins. Um, another study actually did look at weight loss and fat oxidation, 24-hour energy expenditure. And the, the various factors that go into our overall metabolic rate, like the thermic effect of food, and it turns out because our GI tract is very active in the morning, the so-called thermic effect of food was actually higher if we ate earlier in the day. Now, does it warrant everyone to do this? I mean, the the added calorie burn was like only 100 calories per day, but you know, whatever. I mean, I guess that's substantial if you extrapolate that out over 10 years, right? You're burning a lot more calories over that course. Um, so I just like to throw this out there as a caution um, and a little, you know, this may not be for everyone. Like if, if you're getting good results by just having lunch and dinner, then just keep doing that. Like don't, don't rework everything because of this, this one conversation. But for a lot of people, they're trying fasting and they're like, dude, it's just like it used to work, but now it's not like the weight loss slowed. Then give this a try. Like try just eating earlier in the day. And that doesn't mean the minute you wake up, you have to have breakfast that, you know, in this study, what they did is they ate between 8am and 2pm. Right. So as a mother of, you know, if you have three young kids, probably not going to happen like that because you want to have dinner with your family. So it could be like noon and six or noon and five, whatever, you know, but what they were trying to figure out is, you know, if we spread the calories out or if we could just compress them in, how does that affect various parameters of metabolism? And so body composition, fat expenditure, um, all that. But but every study is slightly different in what they used and and this all this data is coming out because this one study back in I think it was 2010 I can't remember the author but the title was something like eat breakfast like a king eat lunch like a queen eat dinner like a peasant or something like that I can't remember the I'm, I could be botching it but and so what they showed is that you know kind of the more that you front load your day with food and then and back off the better you know it is for long term I think they this, I want to say this study was 18 weeks and they found this was actually significant. There was a 10 pound difference between the people that ate later and, and stuff, even though energy was equated for. Mm -hmm. And so there is something to be said about this. And is it the circadian clocks? Is it the thermic effect of food? Is it going to bed? You know, you're already burning fat, you know, before you go to bed. I, I don't know exactly what the mechanisms are. But it's it's interesting. Um, even just the autophagy genes in this early versus you know spread out throughout the day feeding window um, increase autophagy. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think there's also might be like I mean a mental piece to it. I know for a lot of clients I have who binge eat, if we front load their breakfast, like I'm like make your breakfast big, they're just not hungry like at dinner at night when they usually binge. So I think there's also something to that too. Totally. 
Um, I think that's also like a big, the big debate in on Instagram. I see like are the benefits of intermittent fasting, for example, in terms of weight loss, because of the compressed feeding window, or because people are just often cutting calories. I know it's probably a combination, you know, and I kind of poke fun at that on Instagram a lot because it kind of revs people up and there's a lot of fitness people on Instagram. So I think it's kind of fun. But yeah, it, it probably it's probably a combination of the two. But I, I do think and I actually made a post yesterday. I was, it was kind of like tongue in cheek, but it was like the body is so sophisticated. Right. And, and And you have done mouth taping before. I know you got your parents on mouth taping, but, you know. And so you can speak to this as well, but how we breathe oxygen, it's the same amount of air, right? If you breathe through your mouth versus your nose, the physiologic response is different. Like you're inhaling probably the same quantity of air. The oxygen saturation is probably the same, but literally the method in which you breathe changes the physiology. So it's like, you know, the method in which you eat could similarly change your physiology. So so right now we could probably decrease our stress hormones by doing some Wim Hof breathing techniques, which is a series of hyperventilation breaths followed by retention breaths. We're still getting the same amount of oxygen that we would get in if we just breathe normally for 15 minutes. But there's actually a study, I don't know if you've seen it, the, the Wim Hof breathing technique where they randomized people to do either 10 days of training with him versus doing nothing. They injected a very standardized pro-inflammatory molecule called endotoxin. They looked at various inflammatory cytokines and that breathing technique, the Wim Hof method in just 10 days training dramatically decreased the inflammatory response to this standardized inflammation trigger. So you're like, it's there's these two different groups are getting the same amount of air. It's just the method under which and how they do it. It's almost like time restricted feeding in the sense for food, like mm-hmm. you're still getting in the same amount of food, but you're just changing the methodology. And, and so I think, you know, the calorie counting folks are like, it's all about calories. That's it. It doesn't matter if you eat a thousand calories right before bed or a thousand calories in the morning, it's going to lose the same amount of body fat. And I call BS on that because it's, you know, our, our body, first of all, our metabolisms are not constant without throughout the lifespan. We talked about that older woman study. But if you look at I have this post I'm going to post tomorrow uh, about like should grandma be keto? And if you look at as if we get as we get older, our, our tolerance for carbohydrates declines, right? So as we age, we become. So our, our, the premise of this is our metabolism is not this constant thing like our gas tank in our car. And so I think there, and studies show this. It's not. Mike Mutzel thinks there is research to show that when you intermittent fast, you change the metabolites in your blood, right? This is called metabolomics and proteomics. It's not stuff I'm just making up here. These are actually clinical studies that I've actually looked at the metabolite array in fasters versus regular eaters, and they're different. So, um, so yeah, is calorie restriction part of it? Absolutely, probably. Is it 100% of it? No, because the ketones are elevated when you fast. And it's been long known that ketones change genetic expression. And this is why they're being studied in Navy SEALs and undersea divers with oxygen rebreathers. This is why a ketogenic diet works for epilepsy because it changes the metabolism and the um, the inflammatory and the, the kind of pro-stimulatory neurologic state that's characteristic of epilepsy. So, yeah, it's as a long 
complicated way of saying that it's not just about energy balance. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. I'm also wondering in, well, in a lot of these studies, what is the food quality like? Because again, this is like, I see people in the fitness space, it's like the IFYM, it's like, oh, well, intermittent fasting get the benefits, but I'm still eating shit food, but I still get the benefits, you know? So I'm wondering with a lot of these studies, are do they pay attention to the food quality or... It's a good question. No, a lot of, you know, they try to minimize as many confounding variables as possible. So I know it irritates women, but most of these studies are on men because, you know, men's hormones aren't oscillating as much as women's are and stuff. And, and so the hormones do affect fat oxidation and, and all that. And so that's why like you need to, have, if you're going to do a study with women, it needs to be long enough. And then they account for the luteal phase and, and all that. Um, but yeah, the food is very oftentimes standardized, prepackaged meals. Um, you know, this guy, Kevin Hall, who's done a lot of research in this energy balance hypothesis and uh, NIH, I've read some. And here's the thing, like you have to read the study and then the supplementary materials of the study to actually find out what they fed the damn people. It's not like it's, you know, because we see this app, we see science news or we see this Facebook post. It's very sensational. Intermittent fasting doesn't work. And you're like, well, then they reference, oh, this was published in the Journal of Obesity. So it's like they don't even really – you have to go to the Journal of Obesity and like search through all that, find the actual study. And then oftentimes the materials and methods, they don't list what they fed people. It's in the supplementary materials and methods. So it's like the average person that, that doesn't really care about this is only going to see these sensational headlines. Mm-hmm. And which oftentimes those media groups get money through – standard like craft companies or Kellogg or whatever. And they don't have a vested interest in telling people to fast, right? So the point is, you know, I've read some of these supplementary materials and yeah, the food's garbage. Like it's all pre pre-made packet. Like it's in like a, you know, a plastic container, you know, you put in a microwave, like it's, you know, cause they want to make everything very uniform. So it's like mm-hmm. the amount of variables that they're manipulating, they're trying to limit that so they can really figure out, hey, is it carbs or fat? Or is it fasting or feeding? Like what's changing the outcomes that they see? Yeah, that makes sense. It just it just bothers me because people will take this and they think, oh, as long as I you know, compress my feeding window, I can eat whatever I want in between. And I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> but kind of related how does fasting affect the microbiome? Yeah, great question. You know, um, there's only been a few studies on this, but actually um, it's shown that fasting does increase a few different specific kind of keystone species within the microbiome. Uh, Fecobacterium prasnitzii, it's a big complex word, but um, Fecobacterium is actually shown to, it's like this keystone species um, that, that really enhances the stability of the ecosystem. And there's another key strain called Acromenzia mucinophilia. This particular microbug uh, bacteria loves mucus and it affects the mucus layer in a favorable manner. So these fasting studies have shown that. And so yeah, uh, you know, and, and if we look at, I mean, going back to functional medicine and going back to some of these doctors that have been doing this stuff for a long, long time, Sid Baker and these other people, you know, they would recommend like an elimination diet, fasting. If we think about when people are sick, it's very common practice to fast. You're naturally not hungry. And so I think there is a lot of favorable effects in, in the gut could be one of the organs that's beneficially uh, enhanced through through fasting and all that. Obviously, you know, fasting every single day for the rest of your life not not fun- optimal and stuff like that. But but yeah, I think uh, time restricted feeding fasting, you know, is does favorably change the microbiome. Okay, and 
Speaking of hunger, so some people will try fasting and like, I just can't. I'm too hungry. I'm too hungry. What What would you say to that? You know, here's one thing that it's just play tricks with your mind. Like this is this is common. It's like when you first start exercise, you're like, oh, my muscles are burning. I can't do any more reps or sets. Well, that doesn't mean you, that exercise is bad for you or you shouldn't do it. It just means like you're not adapted yet. And part of that hunger is ghrelin. Well, part of the hunger could be conditioning. Like your body is expecting food at this time because you normally have been doing this, but it's not there. And ghrelin goes up in anticipation of meals. So ghrelin is this hormone released from, by our stomach and it drives hunger. And actually, but the more kind of fat adapted and fast adapted we become, the more of a, you know, we still want ghrelin to be increased, but we just want to tame it a little bit. It's like a, it's like a wild, um, what do they call a wild horse? Um, thinking, no, no, um, I'm drawing a blank on it. Um, what, what the, the name of it, but it's, it's like, it's just an untamed animal, right? This hormone is increasing. So we're driving hunger, even though we're not really physiologically hungry. So I, I think it's a good thing. And it, it, going back to the emotional connection, you know, that we kind of talked about mindset and cancer and these biomarkers, you know, if we, what's cool about fasting is it causes you to deal with your crap, you know, cause a lot of us self medicate with food. I'm bored. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I'm this, I'm that. So what am I going to do? Go crush some cookies, crush some crackers, whatever. Um, even if they're gluten-free crackers, right? Sometimes we overeat. And so this fasting causes you to deal with your emotional crap. And I think that's a, a bigger part of it's kind of an underrecognized aspect and we don't have studies on this to show this but it's like you know it forces you to at least be aware that you're tired you're depressed you're hungry you're lonely whatever it is the feelings that you're feeling like you can't mask that or self-medicate that with food and for many of us even in the health space i think we're guilty of this i know i was myself like i was like when I was bored or when I was depressed or lonely or whatever, I would just go have some chips like gluten-free Jackson's fried in coconut oil, probably the healthiest chips you can buy. But I would have, you know, like half a bag. And I'm like, what am I doing? I like, I didn't even know what I was doing for the last five minutes. I was just sitting there eating these things. Right. So I think it's a big thing that we need to be aware of that that can help. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's a good experience. I, that's why I think doing like a prolonged fast is a really good experience because you really have to sit with that. You know, it's like I know like the first time I ever did a, a longer fast, I was like, wow, I just eat because I'm procrastinating, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it makes you realize that. But on the other side of things, I do think there are people in the space who are also using fasting as an excuse not to eat. And that yeah. worries me too. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I, you know, it's it can be overdone, mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, you know, the naysayers, and I think they have something to say about this, and I, I agree with it. It's like, well, you know, we used to call this anorexia. Now it's cool because it's fasting. So I think it's, you know, we, we got to be careful with this. And it's like we can't have an unhealthy relationship with anything. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and where do you draw that line? I don't know. But, you know, if you start to look really skinny, if you're losing your muscle mass, if, you know, if people are commenting, then it's, you know, it's at least be mindful about that. And so, you know, I know my wife got super lean and she's now in the process of trying to like course correct a little bit. And I, I had to actually tell her and be like, you know, Deanna, I mean, to be honest, like you're getting really lean, Like there's no reason they need to be this lean. And she was like, you know, you're right. I'm probably like, I feel good mentally, energetically and stuff like that. But 
I don't need to be this lean all the time. So, you know, she's opened her window a little bit more. She's still doing kind of the OMAD thing, but it's over the course of two hours and, you know, having more fat and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. I think we got to be mindful of that as well. Well, I think with Deanna, though, it's different because I think for me, it's like, what's the intention? Like, Deanna's not afraid of food. Like, right. you know what I mean? But there's a lot of people who are eating and like, or who are fasting and you can tell they're just like afraid of eating food and it's not from a health perspective it's from more of a vanity perspective and I think it's really the intention behind it that people need to be aware of and like being really honest with themselves about like why they're why they're fasting um last thing last thing I want you to be very clear about like technically what breaks a fast yeah, this is a great question. You know, I mean, here's the thing about this. I'm, I don't want to waffle, but I do just want to – I shouldn't even say this, but whatever. So in the feeding studies that they do, and I just we talked about the 5-2 diet or the alternate day fasting, some of these researchers allow people to have 250 up to 500 calories on the fasting days. So it's like that's where people kind of – they kind of obfuscate the issue and say, well, you know, it's, you know, it's just a low-calorie day. It's just kind of like fasting. But – my definition, and I've been, you know, criticized as like a little bit too extreme and stuff. It's like, look, man, if you're going to fast, that's like water, that's salt, that's, mm-hmm. you know, you can do some black coffee, black tea. That's, you know, and, and look, you know, my daughter needed training wheels before she could ride a bike. Like I learned with training wheels too. So if you need a bulletproof coffee to get you to fast for 24 hours, it's, I'm pro- I'm cool with that. You know what I mean? But let's not do that forever. You know what I mean? Let's let's realize that the bulletproof coffees, the MCT oil, the this and that, and the collagen, whatever, that's straddling. Like you're you're trying to bridge the gaps. And bridging the gaps is okay initially, right? Like whenever we do uh, things, like we need a spotter when we lift weights. Like it's fine. But but you want to get to the point where you can do it by yourself and and without the tools. And so I just say give people 12 weeks, you know, or or 10 weeks or whatever and just just realize that when you're having the MC2O, when you're having the collagen, it's kind of fasting, but it's kind of not, you know? And so you just, you, you want to steer the ship in the, in the direction to where you can go and it feels liberating. You're like, wow, it feels so much better psychologically. And like you actually accomplish something when you're like, I went for a whole 24 hours or a whole 36 hours with absolutely nothing. Like I, you feel like you could conquer the world and it's a really cool feeling. And so I want people to realize that, like, yeah, you feel like you're restricting something, but there's so much upside on the other end. Yeah. I also, I don't know if it's just me too, but if I like actually fast and don't have anything, I am not hungry versus if I have like a bulletproof coffee, if I have any calories, it like stimulates, I get hungry earlier. Yeah. So I don't know if there's like science behind that or if that's just me. Uh, no, it. I think it's so true. It's it's that whole cephalic phase, right? You're telling the body calories are coming in and and it's yeah, it's fat calories and whatever, but you're probably mildly stimulating a little insulin, some of those gut hormones. So yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm not crazy then. Makes sense. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of that. I love chatting with you. Like you have so much knowledge. I don't know how you keep it all in your brain. And I know that people are going to love this. I'm really glad that we answered all the fast i feel like it was a good overview yeah. of everything fasting so i really appreciate it so can you just tell everyone where they can find more content from you 
Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, Christina, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Um, my website, highintensityhealth.com. We do a bunch of podcasts and stuff like that as well. Um, yeah, I do some YouTube videos, you know, like kind of whiteboard stuff to explain these different things to people in a different way. And then, um, you know, I have a podcast as well, but then I'm, I also share a bunch of like a little bit of science and some humor on Instagram. So metabolic underscore Mike on Instagram. So yeah, if y'all listen to this and you enjoyed it, you can send me a direct message. Just say, you know, heard you on Christina's show and I'd be happy to connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much to Mike for coming on the podcast and sharing all of his knowledge. If you enjoyed this, make sure you let him know. You can find him on Instagram at metabolic underscore Mike and on his podcast, High Intensity Health and at highintensityhealth.com and make sure you check out his YouTube channel as well. And if you enjoyed it, make sure you share it on social media, tag me, tag Mike, tag at Wellness Realness Podcast. If you tag me, I can make sure I say thank you for sharing because I really appreciate it. And if you have any comments about the episode, I would love it if you brought it up in our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. Go ahead and search Facebook for that Facebook group and join other listeners. Don't forget to leave a rating interview on iTunes if you enjoyed the show and want to show your support. It really means the world to me and it helps other people find the show as well. So that is going to be it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and I will chat with you again next week. Bye.